0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Martin Clifton. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley. Chapter 1 Along this particular stretch of line, no express had ever passed. All the trains, the few that there were, stopped at all the stations. Dennis knew the names of those stations by heart Bowl, Tritton, Spavin Delaware, Nipswich for Timpany, West Bowlby, and, finally, Camlet on the Water. Camlet was where he always got out, leaving the train to creep indolently onward, goodness only knew whither into the green heart of England. They were snorting out of West Bowlby now. It was the next station, thank heaven! Dennis took his chattels off the rack, and piled them neatly in the corner opposite his own. A futile proceeding, but one must have something to do. When he had finished, he sank back into his seat and closed his eyes. It was extremely hot. Oh, this journey! It was two hours cut clean out of his life—two hours in which he might have done so so much—so much—written the perfect poem, for example, or read the one illuminating book—instead of which His gorge rose at the smell of the dusty cushions against which he was leaning. Two hours, one hundred and twenty minutes—anything might be done in that time—anything, nothing. Oh, he had had hundreds of hours, and what had he done with them? Wasted them, spilt the precious minutes as though his reservoir were inexhaustible. Dennis groaned in the spirit, condemned himself utterly with all his works. What right had he to sit in the sunshine? to occupy corner seats in third-class carriages, to be alive—none, none, none." none. Misery and a nameless, nostalgic distress possessed him. He was twenty-three, and oh so agonizingly conscious of the fact. The train came bumpingly to a halt. Here was Camlet at last. Dennis jumped up, crammed his hat over his eyes, deranged his pile of baggage, leaned out of the window and shouted for a porter seized a bag in either hand, and had to put them down again in order to open the door. When at last he had safely bundled himself and his baggage onto the platform, he ran up the train toward the van. "'A bicycle, a bicycle!' he said breathlessly to the guard. He felt himself a man of action. The guard paid no attention, but continued methodically to hand out, one by one, the packages labelled to Camlet. A bicycle, Dennis repeated, a green machine, cross-framed, name of Stone, S-T-O-N-E. All in good time, sir," said the guard soothingly. He was a large, stately man with a naval beard. One pictured him at home, drinking tea, surrounded by a numerous family. It was in that tone that he must have spoken to his children, when they were tiresome. All in good time, sir. Dennis's man of action collapsed, punctured. He left his luggage to be called for later, and pushed off on his bicycle. He always took his bicycle when he went into the country. It was part of the theory of exercise. One day one would get up at six o'clock and pedal away to Kenilworth or Stratford-on-Avon, anywhere, and within a radius of twenty miles there were always Norman churches and Tudor mansions to be seen in the course of an afternoon's excursion. Somehow they never did get seen, but all the same it was nice to feel that the bicycle was there, and that one fine morning one really might get up at six. Once at the top of the long hill which led up from Camlet Station he felt his spirits mounting. The world, he found, was good. The far-away blue hills, the harvests whitening on the slopes of the ridge, along which his road led him, the treeless skylines that changed as he moved—yes, they were all good. He was overcome by the beauty of those deeply embayed coombs scooped in the flanks of the ridge beneath him. Curves, curves! He repeated the word slowly, trying, as he did, to find some term in which to give expression to his appreciation. Curves! No, that was inadequate. He made a gesture with his hand as though to scoop the achieved expression out of the air, and almost fell off his bicycle. What was the word to describe the curves of those little valleys? They were as fine as the lines of a human body. They were informed with the subtlety of art. Galbe—that was a good word, but it was French. Le galbe est vase des de saisons. Had one ever read a French novel in which that phrase didn't occur? Some day he would compile a dictionary for the use of novelists. Galbe gonfle gouleux, parfum pau pervers potel pudeur. Vertu volupt. But he really must find that word—curves, curves—those little valleys had the lines of a cup moulded round a woman's breast. They seemed the dinted imprints of some huge divine body that had rested on these hills—cumbrous locutions these. But through them he seemed to be getting nearer to what he wanted—dinted, dimpled, wimpled, his mind wandered down echoing corridors of assonance and alliteration, ever further and further from the point. He was enamoured with the beauty of words. Becoming once more aware of the outer world, he found himself on the crest of a descent. The road plunged down, steep and straight, into a considerable valley. There, on the opposite slope, a little higher up the valley, stood Chrome, his destination. He put on his brakes. This view of Chrome was pleasant to linger over. The façade, with its three projecting towers, rose precipitously from among the dark trees of the garden. The house basked in full sunlight. The old brick rosily glowed. How ripe and rich it was! How superbly mellow, and at the same time, how austere! The hill was becoming steeper and steeper. He was gaining speed in spite of his brakes. He loosed his grip of the levers, and— In a moment was rushing headlong down. Five minutes later he was passing through the gate of the great courtyard. The front door stood hospitably open. He left his bicycle leaning against the wall and walked in. He would take them by surprise. End of chapter